Good morning. I fully agree with Richard. This was not a topic that I approached with vast amounts of joy, <laughs> or indeed with vast amounts of resources from the pastor on which to base this talk. Um, if you would like a Bible, we're going all over the place this morning. I'm actually going to put up everything that we're going to, every passage that we're going to go to up here, because we're going all over the show. Um, but if you want a Bible to check out that I'm not misquoting, um, uh, wave a hand or go and get one from the back. Um, uh, I'm taking the things, the quotes that I've used from the NIV, the most recent NIV. So if your Bible says something different, it may be a translation issue, not just me misquoting. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of headlines um, broadly on the topic of nationality and immigration over the last year or so. I didn't even bother doing a search, but the ones that came to mind included issues around the Windrush generation, um, uh, questions as to whether we should have an Australian-style points system uh, for immigration, the Leave campaign, somewhat controversial Q poster, um, the immigration targets, whether we should have them, what they should be, uh, economic migrants, whether we should focus on having immigrants from the EU or from the Commonwealth, um, the shortage of nurses, doctors, teachers and agricultural workers as a result of the clampdown on immigration, questions about refugees, who they are, how can we tell whether they're genuine, um, immigrants stowing away and even over the past week there's been several hoiked out of plastic dinghies trying to cross the channel, I can't imagine how desperate you have to be to try that, um, human trafficking in, in all its various uh, unpleasant uh, varieties. Uh, Shamima Begum and Jack Letts, Jack Letts from Oxfordshire, stripped of UK citizenship for their activities in Syria. Dare I say it, Brexit, not going there. Um, and um, <laughs> just not. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to work out what does that mean? And I think it can help to put a human story um, onto it. So um, I was reading the paper last weekend, which is quite unusual. I don't I like to, but I don't very often get to. Um, and this article uh, by Indian Knight was in the Sunday Times magazine. And I'm going to read you selected chunks of it because it opens up some of the issues, I think, quite nicely. So she says, a part of me has been in a state of boiling rage since October 2016 when a politician laid out her vision of post-Brexit nationalism at a political party conference. I was vaguely listening to the speech when one sentence stopped me dead. If you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, this person said. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. Now, I'm using citizenship and nationality more or less interchangeably this morning. If you want to come and have a debate with me afterwards about the semantics of the different words, you can, but it's probably not the main point. Um, and she says, they were talking about me, not just people like me, but actual me, European citizen me, Belgian national me, child immigrant me, foreign me, brown-skinned me, full house on the citizen of everywhere. I felt sick then and I feel sick now with every story about EU citizens who've lived in this country for decades and variously worked, employed people, got married, had children, paid their taxes and grown old, been denying full settled status, that's the permanent right to live in the UK, despite the government's assurances. Earlier this year I got so worried about my own status I had a short list of houses I might 
might move to in France, Belgium, or in Ireland. I don't know if I can convey how frightening, to say nothing of deeply humiliating, it is to be looking at property websites in case you need to move from the place where you've lived happily since you were a child. In March, I paid £700 to a firm of immigration lawyers. Oh, don't be silly. Settled status isn't for people like you, people said. It's a formality. You'll get it in two seconds. Anyone who's lived somewhere else knows about the people like you, usually in the context of it's not people like you. It's very annoying. Um, but I'm sure this was well meant. It reminded me of people saying the P word in front of me and then quickly adding, I don't mean you, obviously. It wasn't a formality, it didn't take two seconds. I was asked twice for additional documentation. But in late June, I was granted settled status and definite leave to remain. I now have a letter from the Home Office that I carry about on my phone in case I need to show it to someone, like a Jew in late 1930s Berlin. I'm a citizen of the... And she says that she could now apply for a UK passport, but she doesn't want to. She likes the burgundy one. I'm a citizen of the world, you see. And like other EU nationals in the UK, I understand more than most what citizenship means. Uh, so my own background, um, uh, a few couple of years ago, there was a programme on the telly, and you may have watched it. I didn't, but I read about it, how I quite often consume television. <laughs> uh, and in this programme, they took a bunch of British people, uh, including some British people who were very, very keen on the fact that they were British people. You, you know what I mean. And um, very keen that there was quite strict limits around who was British. And they did DNA tests on them. And pretty much anyone who was very keen on other people not being British, it turned out that they weren't quite as British as they thought. Uh, so my parents decided this would be great. And they would like to find out a bit more about their family history. They're really into ancestry. We've gone back a few generations. Uh, so uh, they both got themselves DNA tested uh, to find out where they were from. Now, some things with DNA, some things are really really obvious. So if you are from Southeast Asia, you have black hair, it's straight, you have brown eyes, and they're quite narrow, okay? These are just characteristics that you can see that tell you that someone's probably from there. But there's a lot of things in your DNA, uh, little hints and markers that don't necessarily come up in what you can see. Um, so uh, my parents discovered they were very British, really very upsettingly, boringly British. Um, lots and lots of English going on. My dad, a bit of Welsh, a bit of Irish. Uh, the Irish was a surprise, but we knew about the rest. And a tiny bit of Eastern European. My mum, English, Scottish, a bit of Scandinavian. We knew already. They were very disappointed. Um, so um, <laughs> I am the product of these two, so I can say that I am uh, also very, very British. Um, having said that, I have been an immigrant, immigrant myself three times, although as I am white British, I'm not an immigrant, I'm an expat. <laughs> Notice the language difference. I have lived, no, oh, pointed at the right thing, which one? Okay, you may not be able to see. This is Colombia. So um, I lived in Colombia as a child. Um, I went to stay for at least two years, ended up staying one. Next one. Uh, the previous one was near where we lived. But this is a some friend's house, and I'm there in the yellow hat. Um, I lived in Spain for a year. Um, as an adult, um, and I went to New Zealand as well, where I uh, went for three months, stayed for two years, couldn't find uh, 
digital photo of me in New Zealand, but these are the kids last time we visited. You can tell it's New Zealand because the trees are different. It's, I like going in the woods there. Um, my husband, as many of you know, is a Chinese New Zealander. His parents were born in China. He was born in Hong Kong. His brothers were born in New Zealand, where the family settled. Uh, this is our family. Um, uh, we are born in four different countries, three different mother tongues, and I've got a new sister-in-law since that was taken, so our family, we're now born in five countries with four different mother tongues. Um, I've always thought that my own family was very boringly white middle class, very British, but actually my aunt's husband was Persian. Persia's now in Iran, so I've got cousins with Iranian heritage, and other cousins on my side are married to a Moroccan Berber, a Turkish Kurd, a Haitian, and an American. So all, all the children on Phil's side of the family are mixed race, mixed heritage, and an awful lot of them um, among my cousins on my side are as well. So that does colour my perspective on nationality and immigration, and for some of you may mean that you want to switch off altogether at the assumption that I won't agree with you. But what we want to do this morning um, is to look at what the Bible has got to say about this. So what does it have to say? And I have to tell you that nothing, actually, um, directly, which somewhat undermines the point of this series, but you know, bear with me. Um, the Bible's got nothing to say, literally nothing to say, about whether we should have a points-based system, about who we should let into the country, about how we should define nationality or citizenship, Nationality didn't mean the same thing to the characters that we read about in the Bible as it does to us. And I can say that confidently because the meaning of nationality is not the same to everyone here and now. It's not the same to me as it is to you. Um, if you've tried to get your husband into the country of your birth and been told, no, he can't come in because you don't earn enough, citizenship and nationality mean something different than if it's something you've never had to think about. If you're of the Windrush generation, being able to prove your citizenship is vital in staying near your family, friends, home, and all that's familiar. And for many people with EU citizenship, that's gone from meaning they can live here no problem to being scared they'll have to pack their bags and go home, like in the article I read before. Likewise, in the Bible, nationality almost certainly meant different things to Adam. There was only him, after all, and his family. To Abraham, who moved around a lot, had thousands of animals in his own private army. To Joseph, who was sold by his brothers to slavery in Egypt. And to Daniel, taken into captivity away from his own land. To the Jews, their Jewish religion and their homeland were wrapped up together in a way that they're just not for us. So the Bible's not going to speak directly to some of the questions that we might have about stuff that's in the news. By the very definition of the fact that it is news, it is current affairs, it is directly relevant to the here and now, but perhaps not always as directly relevant to every people group. And a book that I'm currently reading explains this very well. So I'm, rather than trying to praise you, I'm just going to read it to you. Not the whole thing, fret not. Um, it talks about the dominant things that we talk about in our society as being a cultural river. And it's quite a useful metaphor um, to think about what is it that drives through our society. So in our modern world, we could easily describe the cultural river that's widely known. Among its currents, we would ideas... I, identify ideas and ways of thinking such as human rights, something we hear a lot, freedom, capitalism, democracy, patriotism, um, various, various social media. 
But in the ancient world, the cultural river flowed through various diverse cultures. I'm talking about Egyptians, um, Canaanites, as well as the Israelites. Um, and these would include things like identity within community, the comprehensive and ubiquitous control of the gods, the role of kingship, agro-pastoral economy, divination, the centrality of the temple, the reality of the spirit world, and magic, the movement of the celestial bodies um, in determining what happens on earth. Um, so we cannot assume any of the constants or constraints of the cultural river. The Bible is written to us, for us, sorry. We're supposed to benefit from its divine message as we interact with our culture, but it's not written to us. It wasn't written in English, and it wasn't written against the culture that we live in. The message transcends culture, but it's given in a form that's fully ensconced in the culture of the day. So it gives um, meaningful information, um, but not the specifics of um, our cultural river. So the Bible, I love this example. It says what I want to say, I think. The Bible doesn't address, for example, social media and its ills or benefits for really quite obvious reasons. But it does offer lots of ideas about having wisdom when we speak to others, the power that words can have. It admonishes us to be cautious in what we say. So it helps us think about our behavior as God's people without anticipation of the specifics of the cultural river, the, the things that we interact with. So that's about the Old Testament. But the New Testament's another culture again, and although it's closer to our culture, it's not the same. So we can't necessarily gain a biblical stance on modern issues. Now, that's not to say in any way, shape, or form that the Bible is irrelevant. It teaches us what God is like, and it teaches us how he carries out his plans in the world. And the Holy Spirit can work in us, particularly as we read the Bible, to transform us and help us to honor God as his representatives. We can glean a number of principles from it about how God views human affairs and what he expects our attitudes to be towards others. I'm well aware that throughout history, people who would definitely consider themselves to be Christians have held views that they believe that are Bible-based that we would now find abhorrent. And slavery, for example, was condoned by the Christian church and even argued for on a biblical basis. More recently, the unequal treatment of women in society is often defended using the Bible. So we need to be really careful when we declare a biblical perspective on modern issues, particularly on those that are likely to be divisive. Now, as the family of God, we will not all agree on politics, or indeed several other aspects of modern society. But we probably differ in our views from members of our earthly family as well. But that doesn't stop us from being family. So my focus here, and this is a very long introduction, but my focus here is not to try to put forward a position statement that I think we should all sign up to. What I want to do is to seek to honour God as we live in the world that he created among people who he created and who he loves. And the Bible has got far more to say about how we live as individuals within a community than it does about national policy, because the majority of the people that it was written to just didn't have a say in national policy. But you've all got a say in how you live your lives. So having said all that, 
and taught for a really long time. I'm now going to give you 10 points that I think we can take from the Bible. <laughs> but some of them, I promise, are really quick. So first, God's plan was always multicultural. So when God called Abraham, he made seven promises to him. And they included, I will make you a great nation, which he did. Uh, that's Israel. He also said, all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, not just the Jews, not just English people, not just people who, you know, we uh, think of as being part of his family, but all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's in Genesis. Next point is that God's plan succeeds, which is really good. Um, so God shows the Apostle John a vision of the end of time written in the book of Revelation and describing it, John says, after this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's from Revelation. In the kingdom, there will be Christians from every people group of every nationality. They will be before the throne of God and they will sing with one voice. It is a vision of unity among people who are different. Number three then, and the rest really flow from those two first points. Treat foreigners living among you well. So this is from Leviticus. Leviticus, I told you we're going all over today. Uh, when a foreigner re resides among you in your land... Do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's from Leviticus 19. Now, it can be a bit tricky to decide which of the laws in Leviticus we should still honour today and which were commands just to the original audience. Now, if I claim on the basis of this chapter in Leviticus alone, then I would also need to urge you, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges off your beard. Tim, you are about the only one honouring. <laughs> but the commands to love others, which is central to this, sits firmly within the commands that Jesus gave us as well. There's nothing recorded that he had to say about hairdressing. So we can probably ignore that command in Leviticus. But love your neighbor is said 10 times in the New Testament, with Paul in the book of Galatians saying that if you love your neighbor, you keep the whole law. And James, who calls it the royal law. So I think we can say that we need to love the foreigners, however you define that living among us as we do the native-born and treat them in the same way, again, however you define that. This is about how we view, treat, and value people. Um, and we must not value people living among us differently depending on where they were born. Now, this has got nothing to say about immigration and who's allowed to live among us. This is about day-to-day -day living. It's not about national policy. So point number four... Who is my neighbor? Jesus was asked this question too. So he told a parable, a story to illustrate it, and it went something like this. There was a woman walking home in the winter. 
Uh, although it wasn't late, about 6 p.m., it was dark. A man jumped out at her, attacking her, tearing her clothing. He hit her hard and she passed out. Then he heard what he thought was someone coming, so he ran off. The woman lay on the ground. Her shirt was ripped and in the yellow glow from a streetlight, her bra was on show. Her skirt was hitched up high and her, on her legs and blood was seeping from several wounds. Another man came into view. He was a well-known figure in the church and had a TV appearance scheduled for later in the week. He saw the woman, imagined the headlines if someone saw him with her, and carried on his way, praying for her as he went. Footsteps came close again. A local pastor, not well known, but dressed very smartly. He was on his way to an important meeting. He was hopeful his church would get a building and some funding out of it. He thought of all the people he would be able to help with that building. Looked at his watch, increased his pace, crossed the road and carried on. The woman moaned quietly and started to move as she began to come too. Car driving past slowed and stopped. An imam from the local mosque got out of a smart new Mercedes, white robes and long beard fluttering in the breeze. He went to the woman, spoke quietly and reassuringly to her, picked her up and got her into the back of his car. Blood from her seeping wounds smeared on his cream leather seats and on his robes. He took her to the local hospital, waited while she was seen and cleaned up, took her to the police, waited while she gave a statement, took her to a five-star hotel, paid the bill for her to stay a week. He also left his credit card number with reception so she could charge for food, good access counselling and be supported while she recovered from her ordeal. Jesus then asked them which of these three was a neighbour to the woman who was attacked. His original hearers could not bear to answer that it was the one who was not like them. They just said the one who had mercy on her or him. Jesus replied, go and do likewise. He used the example of someone his audience reviled and held in contempt in his most famous parable. And we lose the impact of that sometimes. Because the other message from this story is that those we consider different are not all bad. That there can be advantages to having people with different backgrounds, foreigners if you like, in our midst. Point five, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. This comes from one of my favorite passages in the Bible, coincidentally, of course, one where very, very few where the authorship of a woman is acknowledged. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy, from Proverbs. Now, while this might not at first glance seem to have much to do with immigration and citizenship, both are aspects of the current political maelstrom where injustice does seem to be prevailing. Those in immigration detention centres cannot always speak up for themselves. And when we have a voice, we're called to use it to be a voice for the silenced. Point six, Jesus came to break the barriers down. Now this passage I'm taking out of context. And I've said loads about putting things in context. But this is about the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, which is almost everybody else. Uh, is everybody else. Um, but it can also be applied, I think, to the barriers between other nations or groups. Um, it's from Ephesians 2, but I'm going to cut out some of the verses just to get the main points. So therefore, remember that you... That formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So the barriers between people were taken down by Jesus at the cross. To our fellow Christians, we are one household, one family with the same citizenship, which transcends traditional hostilities. Sounds good, but Jesus knew that was not going to be easy. Uh, And he prayed for unity. And in chapter 17 of his gospel, John records a prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before he was arrested. And if you've never studied this, I really urge you to do so. And in it, Jesus prays for those who would come to believe in him. So in other words, Jesus prayed this prayer for you while he was on earth, going through the most difficult thing he was going to go through. So it bears paying some attention to. So he said this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So Jesus put a high priority on unity within the church. In spite of that, there can still be tensions in the church. Uh, And there were tensions in the early church too. Um, And in Acts 6, uh, verse 1, it says, In those days, this is early days in the church, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, Greek speakers among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews, Hebrew speakers, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In other words, at the local food bank, fisticuffs were breaking out. The Greek speakers complaining that their poor were being overlooked in favour of the Hebrew speakers. This is within the church, and tensions can arise within the church when we see others in the, group, in the church as other, and that can include other languages spoken, other ethnicities, other nationalities, whatever the other is, it can lead to tensions and the opposite of the unity that Jesus desires for his followers. But the tensions are reduced by godly, spiritual, wise leadership. Acts carries 6 carries on. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility, the food bank, over to them. So they do. And when you read the chapter, the outcome is the spread of the word of God. Leading the distribution of food, basically waiting on tables... Uh, It might not seem like a very important role, but done well, it led to the spread of the word of God, which is what Jesus prayed, that when we're united, the world will believe that he was sent by God. So unity in the church, whatever the barriers outside, is a high priority. And we can have that unity because our citizenship is in heaven. 
Um, and in Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And the Paul who wrote this, he was a Roman citizenship, and that was really important in the context in which he was writing, and it conveyed various privileges, like the privileges that if you're a British citizen, you have the right to live here, and you know that you're not going to be chucked out. That it was different privileges that it conveyed, but they were important. But he places a lower priority on that than he does on his citizenship in heaven. And Hebrews illustrates this a little bit more. It says, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And carries on. All these people, gives a whole list of people who lived by faith, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. It's interesting. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Which country we're citizens of here on earth has impacts for this lifetime, and those impacts can be far-reaching. But the authors of the New Testament point to a future beyond this lifetime, and for that we need citizenship of heaven. Jesus offers us that citizenship, and he made the way for us to do so. And he asks us to be united with others, united so that others will believe and come to that citizenship themselves. That takes a much higher priority over any citizenship or nationality that we have on earth. So in the passages that we've looked at today, what Jesus offered us is shown in two pictures. One is of the family, and we're offered a place in his family. And the other is a citizenship, that we're offered citizenship in his kingdom. And the offer is open to you, whoever you are and whatever you've done. And if you'd like to know more about that, then please do talk to a member of the leadership team um, or, or to me at the end of the meeting. We're going to finish um, by listening to, watching or sing along to, I really hope, I've used a video, okay, and uh, I, I never trust that they're going to work. But if it works, we're going to watch or listen to or sing along with this. Um, it's, he's our rescuer. And at the start, it says there's so much bad news in the world at the moment. But no matter what, we have good news, and that good news has a name. It's Jesus Christ. And then later on, if you keep your eye open, there's a poster, and on it it says there's no outsiders to the love of God. So as we watch this, let's ask God to show us where our attitudes to others do not line up with his and ask him <clears throat> if there's any changes we need to make so that we are beacons for the good news. There is so much bad news in the world right now. But no matter what, we have good news, and that good news has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. There is good news for the captive, good news for the shame. There is good news for the world who walks away. There is good news for the doubter, the one religion failed. For the good Lord has come to seek and save. 
Okay, as Father, I pray that as we go out into this week, I pray that you would bless every person here and help them to be a blessing, to be ambassadors of the good news, to be united as your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.